0: Imagine for a minute that you suddenly became a billionaire. And while you're considering which Hawaiian island you'd like to buy, and what kind of jet you would like to own to take you there, and how big the throne of stacks of $100 bills and cash you would like to build, let me get you to consider some other things that maybe don't come as easily to mind. Wealthy people are targeted By thieves. So in addition to thinking about all of the ways you would spend the money that you had as a billionaire, how are you going to protect yourself from being robbed? How are you going to protect your family members from being kidnapped and held for ransom? Wealthy people need help. They need help managing their money so that they don't lose it. Either through bad investments Or through unscrupulous people posing as advisors. So, what are you going to do about that? How are you going to find advisors who won't misallocate your funds? How are you going to protect yourself from dishonest advisors who will embezzle the money or overcharge you for the weak financial services they offer? Wealthy people are often asked for donations. So how are you going to decide which causes, in addition to this church, you're going to contribute to with your newfound wealth? Which ones have a mission worthy of your money? Which ones are good stewards of the money that is donated to them? And which ones are wasteful? And how much are you going to give to each charity? And how often are you going to make that kind of a gift? Wealthy people are also targeted by governments who want taxes. So, what kind of strategy are you going to have around that? Will you move to a state that has no income tax? Will you move to Puerto Rico and forego your ability to vote in a presidential election in order to avoid paying US income taxes? That's what some wealthy people do. These are the kinds of questions that we don't think of when we think about being wealthy. We think about how we would spend the money. We think about how having wealth would cause our problems to go away. And these are all legitimate issues. If you were a billionaire, many of the problems that are on your mind this morning could be dealt with. Money could make them go away. But in addition to solving problems, money brings some problems of its own. And the truth of the matter is that everyone has problems, but wealthy people have different kinds of problems than poor people have. Now that doesn't mean, and please don't hear me saying, that wealthy people have worse problems than poor people do. They don't have worse problems than poor people do. In fact, let me just say absolutely for the record, poor people have worse problems than wealthy people do. The fear of starvation is a much bigger problem than which charity should I give money to and how much should I give them. And so I'm not telling you to feel sorry for the wealthy, even though they have different kinds of problems than the poor or than average people have. I'm not telling you that we should weep for them, because they have to decide whether to buy the McLaren or the Lamborghini or both. But we who have never been wealthy are prone to think that wealth comes without problems. We're prone to think that money solves everything because money could solve most things for us. And we often never consider the kinds of problems that being wealthy create The kinds of things that only the wealthy have to deal with. The kinds of problems that are unique to wealthy people. This morning, as we come back to James chapter 1, James is going to talk about the wealthy. They are going to be the subject of this message. And what James says about the wealthy comes in this larger context that we've been studying for several weeks of James chapter one, verses two through 12. The big topic in that paragraph, as you know, is trials. God's word tells us to consider it pure joy whenever we encounter trials of many kinds. And as we've walked through this paragraph of scripture together from James chapter one, We have been taught a number of truths, a number of principles about how to live a life pleasing to God when we encounter trials and what God is trying to accomplish when he allows us to experience trials in our lives. Last Sunday, we started the subsection of this larger section, the subsection being James chapter 1 verses 9 through 11. And there the Bible talks about how poverty tests believers and how wealth tests people as well. We spent the entirety of last message, of the last message looking at verse nine and talked about how poverty tests the faith of believers in Jesus Christ. Today we're coming back and looking at verses 10 and 11 of James chapter one to see what God says The rich. Wealthy people have different problems than poor people do. But they have one especially acute problem that affects their spiritual life, their relationship with God. And that problem is their pride, being humble is the biggest problem that wealthy people have, at least spiritually speaking. Wealthy people have different problems than, ever, than average people or poor people. But the biggest problem they have, at least in their relationship with God, is humility, being humble. That's what today's passage is going to address. Follow along as I read again. James chapter 1, verses 9 and 10. Where the scripture says, believers in humble circumstances ought to take pride in their high position. But the rich should take pride in their humiliation, since they will pass away like a wild flower. And then the next verse, verse 11, says, following that, For the sun rises with scorching heat and withers the plant, its blossom falls and its beauty is destroyed. In the same way, the rich will fade away, even while they go about. Their business. This passage describes for us the challenge that wealth brings in terms of someone's relationship to God. And it tells us that the biggest problem, spiritually speaking, that wealthy people have is being humble. Now, I told you last time that humility is an intent, an internal awareness of your own inferiority. That's how I define it. I define humility as an internal awareness. It's mental, but it's also emotional in many ways. It's an internal awareness of your own inferiority. And I don't mean that inferiority in an absolute sense. Obviously, by creation and in Christ, we are all of value, equal value. So I don't mean inherent inferiority. I mean... Relative inferiority. In terms of wealth and poverty, we're talking about economic kinds of inferiority. But really, anytime, and in many avenues of life, you and I experience humility anytime we enter a new dimension of life. If you want to learn a new skill, like if you want to take up golf, but you've never played golf before, you're going to be inferior to everyone you play with. And if you hire a coach, you're going to be inferior to that person. And unless you recognize your own inferiority, you'll never get any better. That's what humility does. It puts us in the posture of the learner who is ready to receive knowledge. And so humility is a recognition of your own inferiority, but here's the problem with wealthy people. Is here's why they struggle with humility. And that is that wealthy people seldom feel inferior to anybody. If you're a wealthy person who created your own wealth, you founded a business or made a series of smart, strategic investments, or whatever. You might feel that your success financially indicates your personal superiority to other people. Many people view wealth as a scorecard. Beyond a certain dollar amount, it's hard to spend really vast sums of wealth, like in the billions of dollars. And yet, sometimes you'll hear billionaires talk about how it's a scorecard. It's, it's, a, it's a, almost like the, um, the uh, report card you get from school. It kind of tells you who the A students are. And so if you started your own business and built your own wealth, you might look at your wealth as a scorecard that says you are superior to other people. That's why wealth. That's one way in which wealthy people sometimes, or seldom, feel inferior to others. But what if you're a trust fund baby? What if you inherited your wealth from generations before you? So you didn't earn it, and it's not a scorecard of your success per se. I would contend that someone in that situation still struggles with humility, and has still seldom felt inferior to anyone else. If you inherited your wealth, then you've probably had other people serving your needs your entire life. That creates a sense of entitlement. A feeling of superiority. And so it's hard for wealthy people to recognize their inferiority in most situations of life. Because they've never really been in a vulnerable position. They've never really been in a place where, like a poor person, they were dependent on someone else and someone else's kindness in particular. And so humility is an internal awareness of your inferiority, but wealthy people seldom feel inferior to anyone. Yet in our verse this morning, especially the first part of verse 11, The scripture describes for us, or I actually should say the first part of verse 10. In the first part of verse 10, the scripture describes for us God's estimation of things. And in verse 10a, God calls for the wealthy to be humbled. Look with me again at our scripture passage for today. It says, believers in humble circumstances ought to take pride in their high position, but the rich should take pride in their humiliation. That's the point. The rich should take pride in their humiliation. Now, this verse, verse 10 and verse 11 following it, are a little difficult to interpret. They're difficult to interpret in the larger context of trials. That's a big enough problem. But they're also just hard to interpret in terms of just the basic grammar of the passage of Scripture. And the easiest way for me to demonstrate this to you and to show you the problem is to show it to you in a translation that tries to woodenly follow the grammar of the original Greek language, a translation like the ESV. And so let me show it to you in the ESV. I'm going to show you James chapter 1, verses 9, and the first part of verse 10, because this is the relevant part that's difficult to interpret. All right, the ESV says this, Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation, and the rich in his humiliation. Now, there are two key differences, both between these verses and between the way the ESV translates and renders these verses, and the way that the NIV, my default translation, renders them. And the differences between these translations reflect the difficulty that, uh, that all of us who interpret the Bible face with this passage of Scripture. The first thing that you might notice in this passage that makes it different than the NIV is that the NIV says in verse 10, bless, or that's verse 12, verse 10, but the rich should take pride. But notice there's no take pride in verse 10 here in the ESV. It just says the rich in his humiliation, that's it. And again, that reflects the original language. The 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 verb boast is the verb for both verse nine and for verse 10. And so the NIV is correct and they Retranslated that word into verse 10 in order to make it clear what the author James is saying. But there's one thing that also might and maybe should carry over from verse 9 to verse 10 that translators usually don't bring over, and that's this word here, brother. That word brother indicates that the poor person is a Christian. It's very clear that verse 9 is saying, and we interpret the word lowly as poor because it's opposed to the word rich, right? And so James is talking about two opposite groups of people. One is poor, one is rich. That's easy. Verse 9 is easy. God's command to the poor is, boast, take pride in, Your exaltation, that is that God has exalted you through faith in Jesus Christ. But verse 10 is harder because the verb isn't repeated. And more so, the biggest problem is the word brother is not repeated. And the question is, is that intentional or not? In other words, is James addressing poor Christians in verse 9? He clearly is. But should we read the word brother? Should we bring that over into verse 10? Just like we brought the word take pride in from verse 9, or is James saying that whatever he says about the rich in verse 10 is for all rich people, whether they're Christians or not? That's the question. That's what makes this passage difficult. I believe that James is telling us and speaking to rich Christians, primarily speaking. Now, what he's going to say after the first part of verse 10 would apply to any kind of rich person, as we'll see. But I think his instruction, I think what he's teaching in this passage, is primarily designed for Christians. And the reason I say that is this. If if any standard rich person is supposed to take pride in his humiliation, I don't know what that means. But if it's a rich Christian, I do know what that means. And I think I can show you what it means, as I will attempt to do right now. What does James mean when he says, and the rich brother should take pride in his humiliation? The answer to that question has to go to the very core of what it means to be a Christian in the first place. And it addresses the unique spiritual problem that someone who is a rich person faces in their relationship with God. When the Bible says that, going back to the NIV's translation, the rich should take pride in his humiliation, the Bible is reminding us of one of the central points, one of the central ideas of the Christian faith. And that is how every person who becomes a Christian must humble themselves before a holy God. Rich or poor, status in this life or no status in this life, you don't become a Christian unless you come to the place in your life where you stop trying to earn God's favor, where you realize that you aren't deserving of God's favor and love. And instead, you turn to God and in grace receive the forgiveness of sins in Jesus Christ. And that is a humiliating experience. And so when James says the rich should take pride in his humiliation, I think what he's saying is the rich Christian should take pride in the fact that he has humbled himself to receive the gospel message. That's a hard thing for rich people, especially. It's hard for any human being to do, but it's really hard for the rich to do. To humble themselves and receive salvation as a gift. Remember Jesus said in Matthew chapter 19, verses 23 and 24, Truly I tell you, it is hard for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. And that's a literal camel going through a literal needle's eye. It's even smaller than the fingers I held up there. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than it is for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. These are the words of Christ in Matthew chapter 19, verses 23 through 24. And why? what is Jesus saying there? He's saying... It takes a miraculous level of humility for rich people to get saved. Because the disciples follow Jesus' words with, Who can be saved? They understand that what Jesus is saying here about the humiliation of the rich is an impossibility. It's hard for people to humble themselves. It's really hard to humble yourself. If you have won the game of life based on the scorecard, of your income or your wealth, or if you've had everything provided for you for your entire life and you feel entitled, it's hard to humble yourself and come to God and say, I can't save myself. I need you to rescue me in Jesus Christ. But that's what God requires. The essence of the gospel message is that every one of us, every person is a sinner. We are felons against the perfect laws of God. And as felons, we deserve justice, which is an eternity apart from God, being judged for our sins. The Bible says that your money and your Possessions and your good works may give you status in this life. They may give you a feeling of superiority over others who don't have as much money or don't have as high a pedigree or don't have as many good works. But all of these things, the fame, the fortune, the good works, they're all worthless in the sight of a holy God to whom we are guilty. That's the core of the gospel message. And so when God calls for the wealthy to be humbled, that's what he's talking about. He's talking about the need to remember continually as a Christian that while you may have a lot in this life and in this world's goods, anything you have in this life came when you turned from your sins, humbled yourself, and received as a gift the free gift of salvation. In Jesus Christ. Again, that's hard for anyone to do, especially the wealthy who are used to feeling superior and entitled. And so, in verse 10, when it says the rich should take pride in their humiliation, that's what God's word is saying. If a believer is wealthy, that's not why they're saved. And as they live in the church and encounter the trials of this life, the wealthy need to be reminded again and again that it is only by the free grace, the gift of God, that they have any standing before Him. That's what it means to take pride in your humiliation. And so the big idea for this message, the point that I want us to capture and to consider for the remainder of our time together this morning is very simply this. Humble yourself. As an intentional act of faith. My title for this series on the book of James is called Intentional Acts of Faith. And I told you last time that humility is an intentional act of faith. Now I want to call you to consider what it means to live in humility, what it means to humble yourself as a person because you have faith in God. The rest of the passage, the rest of verse 10 and into verse 11. Describe the alternative to the humility that God calls people to have. God commands everyone to repent, everyone to come in humility and receive forgiveness of sins in Jesus Christ. But what happens to people, the wealthy particularly in this context, if they don't do that? If they don't humble themselves before God? We'll look at verse 10 again and we'll see the answer. It says, Since they will pass away like a wild flower. And then verse 11 goes on and develops this image even further. It says, For the sun rises with scorching heat and withers the plant, its blossom falls and its beauty is destroyed. In the same way, the rich will fade away even while they go about their business. God calls us to humble ourselves, but if we don't humble ourselves, he will humble us. Like a flower that cannot survive the heat of the sun. So the Bible says, the heat of God's judgment will be applied to everyone who is not in Christ. And just as it kills the plant, it will bring an end to a person's life, whether they are rich or poor. Death and judgment humble the wealthy despite their financial superiority. That's what the end of verse 10 says and verse 11 are telling us. The wealthy in this life may feel superior because of the money that they have, and even because they earned it and achieved it on its own, but we're all going to die. And when we die, we take nothing with us into the next life. We don't take any money, we don't take any status, we don't take any good works. So death and judgment humble the wealthy despite their financial superiority. And using this image, this metaphor of the flower of the field, James describes the alternative to humbling yourself by coming to faith in Christ. And that alternative is to be humbled when your life ends by the death and judgment of God. Now, it's really helpful to remember that James, the author of this book, is the half-brother of Jesus and that they grew up together in the northern part of Israel that we call Galilee. Remember the Sea of Galilee is kind of the center of it. The southern part of Israel, maybe the part you think of when you think of Israel, where Jerusalem is, that's desert. Stuff grows there, but not in great abundance. But the northern part of Israel, still the desert, but it is a more temperate climate, and there is more precipitation, and so stuff can grow there. And as James describes at the end of verse 10 and into verse 11, The flower of the field, he is recalling, I think, commentators think, the land where he and Christ grew up, the land of Galilee. And in that area, flowers like this, wildflowers and wild grasses, naturally grow, naturally bloom, but only for a short time, just for a couple of months. And when they bloom, it's beautiful. The people who live there enjoy the natural beauty of God. And the children who live there enjoy running around and playing in those living, thriving plants. But just as quickly as they spring up, the heat of the desert sun beats down upon them. And in addition to the sun, there are scorching hot um, winds that blow through the area, making any kind of vegetation like this impossible to last for very long. James was familiar with the beauty of vegetation that springs up suddenly and looks healthy and looks strong and looks like it's in the prime of life and then watching it turn brown and wither, and even burn away because of the scorching sun. And when he says in verse 10, since they will pass away, since the rich will pass away like a wildflower, that's the vision that he's recalling. That's the image that is burned in his mind from his days growing up in Galilee. And he goes on to elaborate the image in verse 11, for it says, the sun rises with scorching heat and withers the plant. Its blossom falls and its beauty is destroyed. What looks thriving at one moment... Is dead and withers the next. And then James closes the point when he says this at the end of verse 11. In the same way, the rich will fade away even while they go about their business. People who are wealthy in this world look like they're thriving their bank accounts and their investments may be thriving. But that financial power gives them the ability to buy nicer clothes than the poor, for sure, and even than the average person might have. It allows them to pay for fancier meals in fancier places. It allows them to purchase cosmetics, and get fancy haircuts that extend the look of vitality in the human body longer and longer into middle age and into older days of life. But eventually death catches up with even the wealthy. And while someone who is wealthy may be thriving economically, They may be cut down suddenly by death and then stand humiliated before a holy God before whom they are guilty of cosmic treason. The late Apple founder Steve Jobs was reaching the pinnacle of his professional success with the release and the sudden sudden and massive adoption of the iPhone. But he got cancer. And despite the billions of dollars at his disposal and the many different treatments that he tried and afforded, he still died. And guess what? His heirs got wealthier because the trajectory of his wealth continued, but he didn't see any of it. He didn't experience any of it, and it could not stop him from facing the specter of death. Here's the point. We think people are thriving when they are wealthy and have all of the trappings of success. We think that living in this life and thriving in this life has everything to do with your economic prosperity and with your success in this world. But God's word says, That wealth in this world not only doesn't buy you anything with God, but in fact, it can be a trial in your life because it tempts you to put your confidence in yourself and in what you have instead of humiliating yourself, humbling yourself, and putting your confidence in God. That's what James is teaching us in this passage. And so his command to us then is to humble yourself as an intentional act of faith. Verse 9 talked about the poor and how that might be a trial in the life of a Christian. And God might do this to you or me. He might put one of us or all of us in a place of financial risk. Maybe even not even due to our own actions or fault. God may put one of us or all of us in a place of financial risk or even financial ruin? If so, that's going to be a trial in your life as a Christian. You're going to ask why God did this. And you might be tempted to turn your back on him because the prosperity that you thought you were getting as a Christian is gone. The trial for the poor Christian is to say, will you find your joy, your confidence, your pride not in who you are and what you have, but in Jesus Christ and what he has granted you by his grace. But in verses 10 and 11, a different kind of trial is envisioned for a different kind of person. God might test your faith in a different way. He might allow you to have more financial strength than you could ever have dreamed of and more than you'll ever really need. And the truth of the matter is, even middle-class Americans or lower-middle-class Americans, most of us have more financial strength than we'll ever actually really need. And compared to the rest of the world, we would be considered wealthy. All of this talk comes in the context of James' teaching on trials. And the trials for a wealthy Christian are different than the ones that the poor Christian faces. The test of your faith if God gives you prosperity or if he just allows you to continue the middle-class existence that most of us have. The trial that we'll face is this. Will you take your pride, your confidence, your purpose and meaning in life? Will you find your status in what you have? In what neighborhood you live in? In what age you're able to retire financially? Or in what things you're able to buy? Will that be where you find your pride, your confidence, your status? Or will you humble yourself and make your source of faith Jesus Christ alone? The Bible never commands against being wealthy. It says those who will to be rich are going to face temptations that the rest of us don't. But it never says it's a sin to be wealthy. Not at all. The challenge for the wealthy is to not put your faith in wealth or your ability to obtain wealth, and instead to trust God and Him alone. And that's humiliating. That's humility. That's an intentional act of faith. God is able to humble the proud, and He will eventually humble us all when our life on this earth is over and we die. The question is, when you reach that point in your life, Will you receive the exaltation that God gives to people who look to him in faith? Or will your humiliation be eternal as you experience the wrath of a holy God forever? The call in this passage is to humble yourself now as an an intentional act of faith. Believe that God is, that he is who he says he is, and that he will judge us all and humble yourself and receive the forgiveness of sins in Jesus Christ. But even as Christians, we need to be reminded again and again and again not to put our hope in anything other than Jesus Christ. This is an intentional act of faith.